EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. Well, it's Friday, and that only means one thing, and it's time to go inside EMS. I'm Chris, and here he is, the man, the myth, and the legend, Kelly Grayson, KG. How are things going on down there in uh, Louisiana? No uh, no chance you're getting any rain or anything from this hurricane that's coming? Uh, no, not from the hurricane. We're just getting rain from our normal weather pattern. Uh, it's, uh, it's the dog days of summer, and it, it's still going to be hot for a while here, man, so we got the the 80 by eight phenomenon going on about 80 degrees and 80% humidity by eight o'clock in the morning and afternoon thunder showers pretty much every day. That's, that's just life in Louisiana. So, but I have good news to report. Oh, good news. Let's hear some good news. There will not be a week six in the continuing saga of will Kelly find a home for the puppy? Uh, no, it's actually was week six of will Kelly get a dog. So, but uh, yeah. so there is a home. We did say talk about it last week. You did get a oh, home no, for no. the little guy. No, I killed him. Oh, okay. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> yes, we found a home for the little guy. His adorable little self is going to be a uh, Manhattanite. It looks like oh, uh, very got nice. A good friend, uh, who uh, has agreed to give him a home, and uh, I think they're going to be a good fit for each other. And he's going to have learned how to to bark with a New York accent. That's awesome, and I, I take umbrage to that because there's no such thing. Um, <laughs> Nancy says that Connecticut people have no accent, but you do definitely uh, have an accent. So it's not true for New Jerseyites and New Yorkers. That's, I, that's yeah, I, I try to hide it really well, but uh, we'll see. So another thing that we want to bring up, Kelly, is it doesn't happen a lot, but uh, when it does, it is a uh, pretty awesome event that you and I will be recording from the same place the week of the 24th of September, as we're both speaking at the same conference in Cincinnati, Ohio, we did it last year. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to run into some of our EMS friends that we'll be able to uh, have on the show. And I got to tell you, I mean, I'll let you talk a little bit about this conference, but it really is a good show. And, uh, you know, for a little regional uh, conference, I got to tell you, I'm pretty impressed with it. This will be about, yeah. I think this is about my third or fourth time going back there. Yeah, this will this will be my second time back. It's a Saint Elizabeth's Emergency Conference, and I forget where in Kentucky. It's right across the river from Cincinnati at the. Yeah, it's Covington, yeah. Kentucky. Yeah, and and uh, Joshua Ismail and and uh, Saint Elizabeth's put on an excellent conference there. Get get some great national speakers and talking about wonderful topics. They treat us really well there, and I am looking forward to doing it again this year. You and I are going to have to be careful though, because you know, get us both together in the same room. Um, we, you know, the, the whole conference center may collapse into a, just a, a black hole of awesomeness, uh, with our collective charisma. You made me, you made me a little nervous there when you said in the same room. So 
I'm glad that you qualified <laughs> that comment. Well, I be, to put on clothes for a podcast. Uh, that's right. I mean, but uh, yeah, but uh, you know, it'll be a good show. Last year we did a show with our good friend Chris Call. Maybe we can uh, run into him again if he's going to be there. You know, but uh, it'll be interesting. And we'll actually do two shows from there because the week after that, I'll like going to Europe to speak in Germany and Italy and Amsterdam. So I'll be doing that, and uh, we'll actually throw two shows out of there, which will be pretty good. But Kelly, as we finish this week, it is National Suicide Prevention Week, and I thought that it would be really important for us just to kind of touch on that, because you and I have kind of committed ourselves to bringing awareness to this with our friends over at the Code Green campaign, and everyone needs to step up their, I don't know, I guess their game, their awareness, their recognition uh, we need to be able to identify the people who are in our ambulances that sit 18 inches away from us, as you say, mm-hmm. and who are having the challenges that they may be going through. And I think that we've done a good job of bringing awareness. I think the Code Green campaign has done an amazing job of bringing awareness. I think that, uh, you know, hopefully is doing some good. But we also have to think about our veterans. We also have to think our peers in the fire service and in the police department. Uh, but this is something that's serious when it comes to public safety, when it comes to first responders. And we need to kind of keep ourselves in a uh, state of awareness. This can't become yeah. become a complacency. I think we are starting to become more aware and, uh, you know, keep our eye on the uh, well-being of our partners and our peers. But there's still more work that has to be done. Yeah, yes, indeed. And, you know, the I, I think at this point, if you're not aware that we have a mental health problem uh uh as a profession um you've been living under a rock uh but uh beyond awareness you know we need to start focusing on on peer support and and destigmatizing ptsd and depression and and that sort of thing in ems and and uh, that's a hard road to uh hard road to hoe uh our our culture is is kind of um, admitting weakness is kind of antithetical to our culture, but our culture needs to change. And I think we're, we're, we're moving along that path. It is getting more acceptable to, to say, Hey, things bother me. I need help. Uh, than it has been at any point in my career. Uh, we have some people, you know, and I see pushback on it on social media. Some, some people who, who still, uh, abide by the, you know, the crusty old, uh, tough, let nothing bother you uh, school of, of, uh, EMS thinks that, uh, uh, the kids of this generation are a bunch of wimpy nasal navel gazers. Um, but, uh, I think it's a good thing, you know, and, and, and we see stories like, uh, there's, there's a story on EMS one today, uh, where a firefighter paramedic named Brent Jones from Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, opened up about his feelings his problems with PTSD and depression, uh, during national suicide week. Brent had four, or excuse me, five of his colleagues uh, died by suicide in the past five years. That, that kind of blows out any actuarial tables that I'm aware of. Dude, we got a problem in public safety. And, and to, to fix that problem, we have to acknowledge it. We have to destigmatize it. And the way we do that is being honest and talking about it. And, and I'm, I'm glad we're, that we're talking about it today. And I'm glad that it's getting easier to talk about. I really kind of want to focus on two things today, Kelly. First off is how do we handle ourselves when we get into those stressful situations? Because a lot of times, you know, we get 
the uh, you know PTSD secondary to the bad calls and the traumas and the and the murders and the you know the kids and we carry that weight with us. Mm-hmm. But then I want to towards the end of the show, I do want to be able to focus on from a provider side. What do I need to do outwardly for my peers, for my partners, and change the paradigm of you know if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. But first off, yeah. you know I, I think and and you've been very very honest yourself about depression. You've been very very honest yourself about the challenges that you've had and i think first off from the standpoint when we think about you know depression and ptsd from the job itself how, how do we really kind of think about keeping ourselves in a better place uh than you know where people find themselves well well first of all we have to be you mentioned awareness um we have to be self-aware you have to recognize uh, and acknowledge the toll that this takes on you. And and you don't necessarily have to be in that proverbial dark pit of despair and you contemplate suicide and ending it all uh, for, for you to be uh, depressed. Um, you can simply have no energy, no creative spark. You're just tired. You're worn out. The things that you can easily rationalize just come after a hard shift on the job. But the truth is you may also be mentally and emotionally tired. Um, and, and recognizing that, that pattern, uh, is crucial to, to your own, uh, uh, mental health, um, find out what your triggers are, uh, and, and what's going on with you that, that causes you to be less than you could be, uh, and seek help in fixing it. Uh, that's the, that was the biggest thing for me was just the awareness. Oh my God, I am depressed. Uh, I had no clue. I I would have been the last person in the world who would think I have a mental health problem until someone who I cared about said, you know, when are you going to get help with your depression? I said, uh, what? She said, look, you hide it well, but I've known you. Yeah, I've known you for 10 years. Um, I was your wife. I know what you were like and what you're like now. And if you took the questionnaire, you would classify as a major depressive. And I'm like, ah, bullshit. But, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, but it's true. Uh, and since then, Nancy has called me out on, on uh, my destructive behavior patterns as well. And, and I think that's probably the first step is recognizing the signs in yourself and cultivating a support system, either your loved ones or your peers, uh, to call you out on it. Uh, and to to help you with it in a non-judgmental way. Um, and the second thing I'd say is get the heck away from EMS whenever you can. And that is also something we don't do well. <laughs> you know, we work two or three jobs at it when we're off. We talk with our buddies about it. Uh, we tune out uh, EMS and recharge our emotional batteries near as often as we should. And, and that, that's a habit that has to change as well. You know, one of the things that's interesting about what you just said is I knew you for about 20 minutes and realized you had a mental health issue. <laughs> so, but I don't know if that had anything like, to do with hey, depression. Peter, you're just narcissist. Oh, I see. I see. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to miscategorize. But, you know, but one of the things that you talk about is, you know, being able to disassociate yourself, you know, get away from EMS when you have that opportunity. And one of the things that I've always wondered, and I'll kind of ask you that question for your opinion is, do we hold on to this job too tight? Do we get ourselves too wrapped up in the, um, 
you know, the, the, the people, the job itself. Cause I, I want to tell you how I, I want to tell you how I approach the MS and people would give me a little bit of guff about this. Cause I would kind of say this, that when I'm with you, I'm going to give you a hundred percent. I'm going to give you the best job that I got. I'm going to give you the best that I have. But when I close the doors at the hospital, my job is done. I don't care what happened to you. I don't mm-hmm. care if you went to the ICU. I don't care if you were discharged. My job was done because I can't control that. And yeah. a lot of times people would give me the uh, the thought that I was too callous, that I was too cold, that I was, you know, that's the New York attitude coming out of just not caring about people. But I did the best that I could. And if I got you ticking and kept you ticking by the time I got you to the hospital, whatever happened after that, I had no control over. Yeah. And I, But I got to tell you, I think it was that mentality that kept me uh, away from the depression, away from the post-traumatic stress. Certainly, I had those calls that bugged me for a, a little bit. Uh, you know, I could think of a 15-year-old that decided decided to hang herself in her home when her 18-year-old boyfriend broke up with her, and, and that bugged me for a lot of years, uh, you know, seeing that image. But, uh, you know, I had to deal with that. But is it something that we just hang on? Do we need to be able to disassociate ourselves more from the jobs that we do, from the people that we meet? Uh, and really kind of when we get to the hospital, close the doors and just forget about the call. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I know it worked for me. Well, I, I think your approach to it is fundamentally a healthy thing. I, I hesitate to say that we need to disassociate uh, ourselves from our profession because I preach to people that, that if you're going to do this job well, uh, and and truly get some enjoyment from it. You got to have some emotional investment in it. You have to have anything, any endeavor that you take on. If you're going to do it truly well and excel at it, you got to have some emotional investment in it. But there's a point where you, you do have to cut it off. I don't think you need to to uh, uh, practice clinical detachment to the degree that they they've often taught in in schools and in medical training. I think empathy is something that you have to let yourself feel. On the other hand, you do have to um, learn how to forgive yourself. And, you, you know, the, the the people that inflict the most psychic torment on us are not our patients. It's ourselves. As long as you can, you know, do an honest self-evaluation, say, I did the best for that person that I physically could then that that's a huge step along the way to being able to forgive yourself and, and put the call behind you. I can't control the rest. That's one of the things I've always been really good at is, is I, I compartmentalize fairly well. And if it's something, if, if I can't affect the outcome of something, then I don't trouble my mind with it. Other people have a problem doing that and, and calls stick with them afterwards. But, uh, you know, uh, there are the calls that, that bother me. Um, and the ones that I can't let go of after after the shift ends, well, I'll come home and I'll talk with Nancy about that or cry on her shoulder or something. Uh, and then I, I do something that, that uh, makes me feel good, like I go hang out with my friends or I put my jet ski in the water or I go turn expensive ammunition into smoke and noise uh, and that sort of thing. But, uh, no, I don't. I don't think that a, a little bit of detachment is a bad thing. I think it's a healthy coping mechanism. Uh, we we need to teach. Uh, it's a it's a sign of resiliency, not callousness. Um, you can be a a thoughtful, empathetic caregiver without getting uh, your emotions torn up with every single call. Uh, the question is, is, how do we teach our colleagues to emulate those coping mechanisms? You know, what you do is 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 a healthy thing. Um, there are plenty of people that say, 
you know, I leave my job at, at, at the door. Um, but for public safety people, that's, that's kind of difficult sometimes because uh, this is one profession where you kind of define yourself by what you do. You don't see accountants going, I am an accountant. An accountant is what I am. I, I do numbers and I am the master of Excel spreadsheets. But you do see that with cops, firefighters, uh, and EMTs. They're, so much of their self-worth is tied up with what they do for a living. Um, that can be an unhealthy thing, but I don't think it's fundamentally bad uh, as long as you keep it within reason. And I think that there needs to be a certain amount of ego in those jobs as well. When you think about EMS, when you, you think about fire. You've got to be a fire, little bit cocky. A do. little bit yeah. cocky to do the job well. Yes, indeed. But you've got to walk that line very, very fine. But one of the things that I, I think I want to ask you is, as you kind of, and you've mentioned this before, and I think every time you bring it up, it's something that we need to talk about. You didn't know that you were depressed. You didn't know that you were having a challenge. If we don't know that we're depressed, how can we fix it for ourselves? I mean, you didn't know. You were having a challenge. Someone brought it to your attention. How do, how do we bring it to our own attention if we don't know? Um, that's, that is an excellent question, and it's, I, I don't know that it's one that has a single answer. For me, the, my approach has always been um, I make it plain to my partners, uh, my regular partners, hey, you're my partner. We spend half our lives together. Uh, if you need to talk, I ain't going to judge you. Uh, I, I'm the one man that will understand what's going on in your head, uh, maybe maybe better than anyone else. So there's nothing that you can't say to me. Uh, and, and one thing I've done in recent years, uh, once I became aware of my own depression is, is I'm a little more circumspect about how I refer to mental health patients and psychiatric patients in the presence of, of my partners. Um, I don't use the pejorative terms nearly as much as I used to. And I used to, you know, take pleasure in being cynical and that guy's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and his, his cheese is not firmly affixed to his cracker. He's got a chronically low marble count and, and this sort of thing. And, and I say them in jest but they're not always taken in jest, you know, and there are a whole lot of things I say in jest uh, and 95% of people laugh at them and the other 5% think I'm an insensitive prick. Uh, it's those 5% that I, that I worry about because um, if you're, if you're joking about that sort of thing, how easy is it for your partner to confide in you and go like, you know, I don't want him joking about me because I think the same th thoughts that that last guy we had uh, is suffering from, you know, I've had those dark thoughts. I've had those those moments where uh, I felt uh, that I couldn't cope anymore. Um, I can't tell him about it because the next guy he works with, he's probably going to be laughing about me. So I'm a little more circumspect about that. Uh, I still do it occasionally, um, but but I, I try to be more aware of how my speech uh, affects other people. And I think that unspoken message is, you know, if you do that. Uh, that that your your partner can confide in you um so if they want to reach out i'm there if if they don't want to reach out i would hope that they think the same of me that any criticism or, or any any question i ask is is asked in the vein of of, of concern and, and helping them not uh, uh accusatory you know my partner now is he is a crotchety uh, he is a crotchety, grumpy dude. Um, we're both crotchety, grumpy dudes, but, um, 
uh, working with Doug is like is like working with a second wife. Nancy and I've been joking lately that that I have two wives. I have a wife at home and a work wife, uh, and I never get any peace. <laughs> but we laugh about that sort of thing because it's kind of a running joke between us. But I know that if if he said, "Man, I'm having a hard time with that last call," that uh, he wouldn't have any problem saying something about it. And and uh, so we we do something outside of work, or or you know we. We go somewhere after the shift ends and, and uh, grab some breakfast and decompress, that sort of thing. So I think the first thing is just being available. You don't necessarily have to push the issue and say, hey, I'm concerned about you. Just send out the unspoken message that you're available uh, if, if they need to reach out. And that's, that's in itself hugely comforting. And I think that one of the things that we need to focus on now is the people who have that lack of empathy, that lack of compassion when it comes to their partner. And, you know, you hear those, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen comment. And, you know, we think that just because somebody has a challenge with a call that we, yeah. you know, we question their, uh, their strength. And we've got to realize, I think, one thing that how we deal with issues is our way of dealing with issues. It's hugely personal, yeah. But the way that you handle those issues, that's who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. And I I can't pass judgment on you for the things that you think and you feel, even though that we think we can and we like and we like to label those people. And you know, there's something called the law of the excluded middle, Kelly, and I want to share that mm-hmm. with you. The law of the excluded middle is whatever we label somebody, they either are or they aren't what we label. There's no middle ground. So if I say yeah. that you're a, what'd you say, an insensitive prick? You said that before. Mm-hmm. Is that that's yeah. a medical term, right? Yeah. So if I label you that way, you either are or you aren't. There is no middle ground. And we'll always yeah. see that person the yeah. way that we label them. They either are or they aren't whatever we label them. And we've got to stop doing that to people. Yeah. We've got to stop putting the onus on them that they either are one thing or they aren't another thing. And just accept those people for who they are. I mean, you leaders do it a lot of times when they say someone's lazy or they say they're a cancer. And now it just convicts them and it makes them what we think they are. And we've got to stop doing that. And, you know, the people that are having challenges with the calls, the people who don't like to see the deaths of the babies and the, and who really does, we've got to be able to accept that for who they are. We've got to be able to give them that freedom that they're able to bring up the challenge that they're able to cry if they want to cry, mm-hmm. that we're not going to be the ones to point a finger. Because I got to tell you, if you are that type of provider who thinks uh-huh. that you are better than your partner, I, I, I got to tell you, man, you need to leave this career field because you're not doing your patients a big uh, favor by being somebody who's passing judgment on the person who's sitting next to you. If we're supposed to be the most no. compassionate, we need to start with our partners and we don't need to judge them and we need to be able to accept them for who they are accept their beliefs. Now, that doesn't mean I have to agree with them. I mean, you yeah. and I you and I have a lot of differences when it comes to our beliefs as individuals. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think was really cool is I just read a book about, you know, certainly in the day and age of this uh, Supreme Court justice nomination, I've been doing a little bit of reading and a little bit of research on the Supreme Court. And recently they had a thing on CNN with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was an incredible justice. But her, her best friend was Antonin Scalia. And, yeah, and, and, total political and, and philosophical opposite. I mean, p- 
polar opposites. But you know what? They had a three-decade friendship that they were best friends. And, you know, you've got to be able to have those beliefs, but you've got to be able to respect that person. I'd be interested to know what you think. I I think that if you you seek commonalities with people and and things in common, um, and and that's where you that's the intersection where you can connect with with another human being, even if you do have differences in opinions and differences in philosophy. Uh, one of I think the, one of the worst things about social media uh, is it, it it we engage in that that exclusion that that uh, labeling that you talked about and and everyone is treated as if they are the extreme uh, or the caricature of, of who they really are uh, and and you don't consider the whole person. And it, it's kind of cheapened our, our discourse in this country. And, and heck, I've been as, as guilty of it as, as others. Um, but the, the thing about Ginsburg and Scalia is, is both they may have had totally different political philosophies or, or, or philosophies on, on the judiciary, but they could both recognize a very keen mind uh, and, and an overall uh, uh see the humanity in the other person. And I think that's what you, you have to seek when you deal with, with your partners, you may not like them. Uh, you may not, uh, you may not share a bunch of their views. Uh, but I think the, the one thing that draws us all to EMS is we we're driven to help people, uh, regardless of where you come from, uh, or what your outlook is. Uh, that's the commonality that we all share. None of us got into this for the chicks and the money. Uh, so, or the guys in the money that's, um, we got into it because we like to help people, uh, and then everything else is something that we'll put up with in order to have the opportunity to help people. And there's a lot of common ground to be found there. So, um, if you build on that, then, then you can be supportive of even someone who you don't particularly care for, uh, as a friend, you know? Um, it, it's not so difficult to envision someone, uh, having the same feelings as you, uh, uh in response to a bad call. Uh, if you come at it from that standpoint, you know, why would any human being not be affected by that? So that's where I'd go with it is, is seek the, seek the common ground, uh, that we all share. And that's, uh, we all have a desire to help people. We're all fundamentally altruistic people. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Email us with your concerns, comments, questions, suggestions from topics for future shows. For myself and co-host Chris Civilero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week. Bye.